Hello and welcome to Tricycle Talks. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. In contemporary American culture, the Korean War is often referred to as the Forgotten War. But according to Korean-American novelist Marie Myung-Ak Lee, the war is still very much alive for those who lived through it and their descendants. In her new novel, The Evening Hero, Marie examines the forgotten history of the Korean War and the ensuing displacement and loss that so many Korean families were forced to endure. Weaving together an exploration of Korean religious traditions, contemporary political commentary, and a critique of the commercialization of healthcare, the book follows the story of a middle-aged Korean-American obstetrician, Jungman Kwok, as he navigates a changing world. In today's episode of Tricycle Talks, I sit down with Marie to discuss Korean rituals of honoring one's ancestors, the generational impact of wartime trauma, and her travels to North Korea. Okay, so I'm here with writer Marie Myung-Ak Lee. Hi, Marie. It's great to be with you. Hi, James. So happy to be here. Thank you. So we're here today to talk about your new novel, The Evening Hero, which follows the story of a Korean-American obstetrician grappling with memories of war in a rapidly changing world. Can you tell us a little bit about the book and what inspired you to write it? It had a lot of inspirations. I've been working on it for 18 years. And one of the first flashes of inspiration I had was when we were taking our son, who's very medically fragile, to the doctor. And he just offhandedly mentioned a case that his friend was involved in. His friend was an OBGYN who had to help a woman who was in crisis. She was bleeding out of her pregnancy, and he managed to stop the bleeding by doing a hysterectomy. And she later sued him successfully for a loss of fertility. And so that made me think about what would life be like if you're doing the right thing, but somehow in a court of law, they're able to prove. And then it was making me think of what if there were racial implications, like you're Asian and there are certain like stereotypes about that. And so I started writing that along with my favorite book of all time is George Eliot's Middlemarch. Ah, I love Middlemarch. Do you love Middlemarch? I do love Middlemarch and Mill on the Floss too. So it's everything I hope that this book is. It's funny. It's about village life. It's also about a doctor trying to do the right thing who accidentally kills someone. And so kind of the melding of these two things kind of got me going. And then more about a medical malpractice case. And it was actually more satirical about like startup culture because Dr. Youngman Kwok's son is also an OBGYN, but he's really, he's going to work at the Mall of America. It was actually a lot more funny and satirical like Middlemarch, but with the elections in 2016, I kind of took a step back and I kind of felt that I wanted to be more directedly about Jungman's story. There was so much talk about bombing North Korea and it made me think about how in my small town, like my parents are actually migrants originally from North Korea, but most mm-hmm. people didn't know that. And it just made me think about how easily people in our town were very into this bombing uh, narrative without realizing that this human being, my father was the anesthesiologist in town. So that means he's probably touched every single person, you know, with birth, surgeries and so forth, accidents. So it kind of morphed into this huge book about this man who seems like this little doctor, but he's got this huge weight of history behind him, even though he's in the end of his life and he's retired. He has this huge decision he has to make. And can he still have this kind of growth at the end of his life? Or will he just like glide into retirement, which would be the easier decision? There's still a little bit of humor in it. For instance, his name is Jungman Kwak. He's an obstetrician. And his name is easily mispronounced Kwak. Yes, exactly. I also feel like Koreans in general are humorous people. So it's impossible to keep the humor out of it. If you see a Korean zombie movie, there's still always going to be a little bit of humor as opposed to like straight horror. Koreans are funny. Yeah, it's interesting because at the beginning of the book, you see this Korean-American doctor and you don't suspect the weight of history is on him until you read the backstory. You've shared that this novel took 18 years to write and your TikTok handle is Daily Writing Makes Book, which I thought was very funny. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process and all of the research that went into the book? Sure. I'm the kind of writer who, once I get an idea, if I'm going to do it, I have to be all in. You know, for instance, this guy's an obstetrician. So when he's going to do the surgery, is he going to hold the scalpel like this or like this? Like, I feel like I can't write it unless I can be embodied in what's happening. 
the first two years actually were straight research, including trying to get into a hospital. I was a professor of creative writing, though, at Brown at the time, and I was trying to do all these sneaky things to get into the hospital. They did let me in once to watch a surgery, but they had the legal person there the entire time, kind of watching everyone. So it was very awkward. In the meantime, I was traveling down here where my friend is a GYN at Woodhull Hospital, which is public. So they're, they're a little more casual. Ended up helping a midwife deliver a baby, and it was very wow. fun. And then finally, through my work, was at the Center for the Study of Ethnicity and Race in the Americas. And there's a public health program, and I managed to meet this guy who said, oh, there's a new head of OBGYN, and he's not a doctor. He's a PhD, and he loves literature. So this guy knew exactly what I had to do. In fact, he got me an ID. I was embedded with the third-year medical students doing their OBGYN rotation. I pretty much went on their whole rotation. But there were just other things that, so Yungman is North Korean. And at one point I realized I'm going to have to go to North Korea. Like the kind of the goals <laughs> kept going and going. But eventually, weirdly enough, in 2008, I was able through some very weird circumstances to go to North Korea. Really? So, how, how did that happen? I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. No, it was not. And it seemed like it would never happen. A bunch of Brown students in the East Asian studies program who were doing Chinese said, hey, we found a fixer who will take us to North Korea and we need some faculty to come with us. So, of course, I volunteered along with the person who does Japanese history, who was a white man, who this was also the time when Kim Jong-il was launching what was called the Tepodong, which is the one of his giant missiles. So that guy was just said, I'm out. Like, there's no way. The State Department actually told us not to go. And also as a Korean-American, North Korea does not allow journalists or diaspora Koreans to go because obviously the fact that we don't live in North Korea is counter to the fact that it's the greatest place to live on earth. But these students were clever enough that instead of getting our visa in Beijing, they got it at a much smaller outpost in Shenyang. And then when they were saying, we need this person's Chinese characters in her names, so we can look up her family, blah, blah, blah. So of course I'm so beady and I'm like, okay, writing it down. They said, no, 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 no. They just said, stop. We're just going to say you're traveling and if they don't just let you in under our group visa, this whole academic group won't be able to go. So that gamble paid off. So we were in a group visa that didn't have my Korean name. And then actually, <laughs> while you're at it, I actually brought my mom along. My father had actually died. He also was a doctor and had tried to go on a couple of missions to North Korea. But each time in Beijing, the white doctors were allowed to go and he was never allowed to go. Right. And so his last time, he actually had to fly back to Beijing. Then he flew to Seoul, where I was living as Fulbright Scholar. He was just so sad. And so I just kind of had always carried that with me. So even despite the State Department saying, you can't go because there's no consulate there. If something happens, we can't do anything for you. I just kind of, I, I got to go. Okay. So you've compared the importance of writing each day to the role of repetition in Buddhist rituals. Can you say more about that? Well, one thing that's very important in Korean Buddhism is ritual. And a lot of it is the idea of tedium leading to some kind of enlightenment. And there's all sorts of jokes about cleaning out the bathroom and how that will lead you to enlightenment. But there is a certain idea that when you do something every day, it is the same. But then when you do it enough, you see that it's not the same. And so for me, that means having a new kind of way to observe things that I think that I know, I think that might be the largest part. And then there's the whole idea, which might not be just as Buddhist. I think it's more my feeling of ancestors and ghosts is showing up every single day. I really literally write every day. And a lot of it is about checking in. It might just be mm -hmm. changing a word or so, but I really feel that the work is a living organism. and needs to be engaged with every day. And then you keep adding pages and eventually you get the thousand pages that this book was. Yeah, one thing about ritual that I was thinking of, I was speaking with a Japanese Zen priest the other day and his teacher told him early on, do 108 full prostrations every day for 108 days. And then you'll really know this practice. So there's a certain embodiment that takes place with repetitive sort of ritualistic action. Exactly. And it's not like you're going to do like 10 push-ups. It really is having to be present for each one. It can be annoying. And then once you do it, once you get through the annoyance, which is very much like the process of writing, the middle part is the worst. <laughs> because yeah. Starting is easy. Ending is easy. <laughs> but the middle part, you're still trying to figure out what you're doing is difficult. 
Right. So the title of the book, The Evening Hero, is the translation of the main character's Korean name, Yungman Kwak. Can you share more about the significance of naming in the book, particularly for characters moving between languages and cultures? Sure. The weird thing is, I didn't really know at the time, unless you know the Chinese characters underlying someone's name. The character Yong can mean a lot of things. It can mean dragon, it can mean pure. And so I just heard that name in my head. And later what I do is I check these things with a friend who knows a lot more about this. And what's funny is he was taking me to task a little bit. So chic does mean vegetable. So there's a joke that his brother's name is eating vegetable. It does mean that in Chinese. It's unlikely someone would actually be named that. So we're having slight arguments about artistic license and so forth. He was a little bit, I'm not sure I would spell Yong that way, la la la. But then later he wrote back, and this is a little bit where I like to get into the idea of the ghosts or the ancestors. He said, he was looking not for my book, but through something for something else he's doing. And he was looking at these oracle bones. The oracle bones with the character for Yong had a woman with like an X inside her and then kind of like a male character outside that. And he said, under one rendering, you could look at that as the word for gynecologist. (laughs) The idea of the title, The Evening Hero, or that they even call him that came much later, but it became so significant and resonant. I feel more like it was there all the time and I had Mm -hmm. needed to dig it out. Because what I'd had as a placeholder, as my father told me his nickname in college, which is kind of that word for Robin Hood. That kind of made me think of like someone who could become a hero later. Yongman's name, that was his nickname for a while, but it wasn't quite right. So then when the evening hero came out, then that just, everything kind of settled. Is he going to be an evening hero? There's a certain Walter Mitty-ish tone to the book where he's just kind of this bumbling guy whose wife is really mean to him and what's going to happen. His little brother's name, Yongsek, why evening vegetable? Part of it is the idea of the joke. And then part of it is the idea of the names are so important. Like my name, for instance, is Myeongok means brilliant crystal. And my sister's name is Cheongok. So she's like pure crystal. And then my brothers are Cheonghyang and Cheongwan. So that ties us all in a generational, not just in our family. Like there's a certain almost formula that the patriarch picks but then also when I meet other writers like Nora Okja Keller, I could just be like, ha, like you're my sister, like you're my generational sister. But there, you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of the tie. And then also the fact that Yungshik has always secondary. The first son is always the first. He's the prince. He's the person that everybody relies on for everything, the name and everything. So I just thought like having him have a much dumber name, especially for audiences that might not understand the nuances of that, that would just kind of be a reinforcement of that. Well, as a younger brother myself, I identified with him. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned a little bit about your name. What about the story behind your name and how you present yourself as an author? Well, the funny thing is it wasn't a sudden ethnic awakening. So my two first names, which are on my birth certificate, are Marie Myungok Grace Lee. When I was publishing earlier, I used to publish under the name Marie G. Lee, kind of to honor my mother. And then at some point, it turned out there's a very famous, very wealthy writer named Marie Lee who writes the Cape Cod Skull Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And at one point in books and print, before everything went digital, they actually mixed the two of us up. So I was getting her royalty statements, her fan <laughs> mail. I know. Her royalty, royalty checks. Statements. That was really, <laughs> I wish. So that was just kind of a problem. So at one point when I was publishing another book, someone said, what do you want to do? It kind of converged with the idea that I was a Fulbright scholar in 97, 98, when I was doing research for my first adult novel. And we don't really have a lot of family, but I spent most of my time with the extant family that I had. And Marie in Korean, they would call me Mori, which is a homonym for head, which is super annoying to me when they would call (laughs) me that. And then my husband's name is Carl. And so in <laughs> Korean, they call him Kal, which means knife, but Mori Kal means haircut. So <laughs> I just got really sick of those jokes. And then also for the first time, having people call me Myungok and just hearing it that all the time, first, because it's easier. Secondly, because I just got sick of them calling me Mori. 
that just made me feel a lot more because my parents never, because, you know, we grew up in a really white area. They never used our Korean names. In fact, I had to ask them what my name was when I was in Mm -hmm. high school because I didn't know what it was. But now it's become really special to me. My Chinese friend, I guess it's pronounced Ming, but so she has the same first character. So she found Mm -hmm. this rock with the characters. And so there's just a certain ideas of sort of an Asian self that I had ignored for very long that is really resonant. And then also... You know, I used to be a rock hound and I used to love courts so much. And my dad used to take me to these rock shows and he never said, your name means brilliant crystal in Korean. (laughs) And so it's just weird how I've always been drawn. Like I just have crystals everywhere. And so I just feel like this has always been a part of me, I guess. So you grew up in a primarily Caucasian area, more or less like the protagonist and his wife living in an all white world in Minnesota. So you identify then with this character to some extent anyway. You're not first generation, but there's some identification there, I would guess. Oh, definitely. Jungman is a lot more, let's say, himself and has his own interesting observations and kind of counter things that he does where I feel like the way we grew up, probably because my parents, when they first came to the country, they were actually in Jim Crow, Alabama in the 50s. Right. So that's their first introduction to American racial politics, where Korea is apparently the most homogenous country in the world. So they don't have any idea what they're doing. And, you know, they grew up under Japanese colonization. So very much how we grew up was white people must be right. We have to emulate this. We have to be like this, where it was kind of fun for me to write a Jungman character where he's always like, why are white people doing this? Why do they wear their shoes inside? You know, (laughs) and also, you know, the whole idea of Christianity, like, you know, when he's growing up in Korea to get food from the missionaries, he has to say this weird mumbo jumbo over his food to get it, where that's just kind of weird to him or drinking the blood of Christ. That's all really weird <laughs> to him. That's funny. You know, many characters in the novel are living in the aftermath of the Korean War. And in the U.S., we don't often hear about the full extent of the atrocities of that war. As you write, even a war that's declared done, dead, forgotten can still be alive every day for those living it. Can you share some of what you've learned about the impact of wartime trauma on generations of Korean families? So as you probably know, a lot of people call it the Forgotten War, wherein it's not forgotten by the soldiers who were there, including the American soldiers. It's not forgotten by people like my parents. You know, seeing what's happening in Ukraine has brought back a lot of things you know, that my parents said, you know, for instance, my mother had a harrowing trip from North to South Korea, but 1945, after World War II ended and the partition was happening. But she had a fairly um, untouched time during the war. But then she just talks about how she never got to finish college, where you feel like, oh, well, so what? You know, you're alive. But people don't understand what it's like to one day just be do 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 and then suddenly <laughs> there's tanks and, you know, you're fleeing for your life. And even if you don't get hurt, it's just completely changed the trajectory of your life. And, you know, my father used to drag us to the, the one time we were in the Netherlands, he dragged us to the Anne Frank Museum and just had some very insane to me, like obsession with it. But I didn't realize he spent a whole year of his life hiding behind walls to not get conscripted. And that he almost starved to death and he only had a Bible to read. We're growing up in the Midwest going, you know, what's for dinner? I don't like this. And right. I'm finding it really interesting that they're actually finding with Holocaust survivors and their, their descendant that, I don't know, if they develop some kind of aversion like to apples because something happened to them when they were eating an apple, there seems to be experiments that suggest that the next generations will have this aversion. And I am finding with people of my generation and younger, I was born here, all my siblings were born here, but we do have this feeling of our parents' trauma that causes, um, you know, if I can speak frankly about it, there's a lot of families that I know, including ours, there's been physical abuse and so forth. And a lot of that has come, I believe, from unprocessed trauma. So because my mother had to make these split second decisions that changed her life. So basically when she went across the DMZ, she just thought she was helping her aunt get across the border. She never saw her parents again because they closed the DMZ like the next day. But for her, it became this panic disorder. I have so many memories of these crazy things happening, like her driving down the wrong side of the road. And for us, we all had this similar kind of anxiety 
But me in particular, because I started meditating when I was nine and not sure what I was doing, but it, I had this continuous practice where I would meditate and I didn't know what it was. I would just sit and try to get myself in this bliss state. My parents actually yelled at me when they saw me doing it. For this article I was doing on alpha waves, I had to have what's called a QEEG. It's a very detailed EEG of your brain. And my son has autism. So they kind of compared our brains and they also said, you know, you have the most crazy brain. My brain works very quickly. So you can see I speak quickly. So I have high alpha, which can be related to intelligence and being able to think very quickly. But at the same time, high alpha is almost always correlated with high beta. Beta is what causes anxiety. So that's why for my son, he also has high alpha and tons of high beta. So his brain is like on fire. Like he can't think because his, his alpha is actually faster than mine. But they said, your brain is so weird. They said, it's flipped around from what most people have. They said, you have a ton of alpha right here, but the rest of your brain is like super low beta. We've never seen anything like that. And they said, you must be the most calm person ever. I was like, no, I'm not. I am just completely wound up. I'm type A, but I do feel the daily practice of that has literally physically been able to change my brain mm -hmm. because the salutary cooling beta is dominant in my brain. And I'm trying to think what a mess I would be actually <laughs> without, without it. it, with the unprocessed trauma of my parents, because I am very high strung and, but I'm very functional. And they said, you know what, with that profile, I would make a great sniper. They do a lot for the <laughs> Department of Defense. Yeah. Isn't that wonderful? And I said, yes, I'm Buddhist. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Right. <laughs> so one of, one of the through lines of the book is the question of how to properly honor one's ancestors in a changing world that's so important in East Asia. Can you talk a bit more about Korean rituals of ancestor worship or honoring one's ancestors? And I say this because many people during that war were separated and that became impossible and they had to make do in different ways. Yes, there are, you know, real protocols that you're supposed to follow. When you bury someone, you always orient their head towards home. You keep all the bones together. So my grandfather, whom I never met, um, had died during the war and so we had to disinter him so we could move him to a better place like when I was there in the 90s. And the care that they took to make sure there wasn't one single bone fragment, the whole idea of the Korean dead body is the corp, all the pieces have to be held together. So there's no cremation and so forth. But then, of course, you know, with the war, there were so many mass graves, nobody knew where anybody was. And, you know, what's been really interesting for me is the dominant group of people who immigrated were Christian. And part of it is people who are Christian tend to know English or have these kind of pathways where they would immigrate or have the resources to be able to immigrate to the US, even though Korea is a minority Christian country and it's primarily Buddhist and then a bunch of other things. Buddhism tends to flow into animism and shamanism and it's all, everyone's pretty cool with the fortune telling. It's more like if you're Christian, you're not supposed to do any of that, but right. people will go to temple and then go to fortune teller. And then there's a lot of feng shui. Back to my friend who, who read the Oracle Bones. This sounds like really crazy, but I was walking down a stairway in Harlem. It was just like a stairway in a park and it's kind of not very used. And one day I looked down and there was a coin and it was a Korean won from 1988. And I was telling my husband that clearly the ancestors were haunting me and sending that to me. And so my husband goes, oh, you know, probably some grad student dropped it or something. And you know, <laughs> I've no one's ever found a coin. I've never found a dime in this place. So I had to show Heinz and it was so interesting because it's 1988 and he, he had all these ideas of what it was. The number eight is very lucky. So 88 is double luck. He also said 88 was during the Olympics. And so he said, this was a clear message for me from ancestors that I'm supposed to be this voice to get these stories out. And so to circle back, one of the things that was so wonderful about this is that I made a commitment to myself also where a lot of times even Korean diasporic authors will make these mistakes. Like there's a children's book that's very famous and it gets Buddha's birthday wrong. It has Buddha's birthday in December, like Jesus, you know, where I felt like, oh, come on, you know, everyone in Korea knows it's in April. So I felt like I'm going to make sure I'm not going to do this with the war. 
everything has to be sort of verifiable, so to speak. So there are things like biological weapons that show up. And I was actually talking um, to an author who did a book on FOIA. And some of the stuff he FOIA'd was trying to figure out if there were biological weapons used during the Korean War. And he was looking at my book and he said, how do you know all this? Like the powder and the feathers and all that. And I said, I don't know that, but I talk to people and a lot of people remember that. And not only that, when I watch Korean movies like Bong Joon-ho, who did Parasite, he did an earlier one that was deeply metaphorical of the Korean War. Um, it was called The Host. On the outside, it's a silly kind of Godzilla movie where the American army wants to dump all this formaldehyde into the into our sacred Han River, which was based on a true story. And they did, but it created this big monster that was going after everybody. But there is a scene where they are making these announcements going, everything's fine, everything's fine, like stay in your homes or whatever. And there's this junk coming out of the sky and you see people falling down and having seizures. Just like, you know, I have it in my book because that's what people talk to me about. And so I'm thinking, oh, you know what? This is just me being an American and my American like centric view where in Korea, this is just really part of the cultural memory where it's in the Godzilla movie. So one thing I can feel like I can rest assured, and that's one of the reasons it took me so long, is everything in the book, none of this is my wild speculation, you know, from the mass graves to biological weapons, or a lot of the stuff that happened with the US that you think, oh, they were there to help the Koreans. And so they just slaughtered people no, that's why that Pulitzer book, The Bridge Under Nogun Lee, is, won the Pulitzer. But that was just one incident. That was one incident where they had enough documentation to write a book. But this happened so much. And I don't even think people realized, you know, when I went to North Korea, all the students were looking at my mother going, oh, she's going to be so emotional. But I just thought, kids, you don't realize the Allies bombed 99% of North Korea, actually, and 90% of South Korea. There was no infrastructure. The military brass were so shocked. They said it was a lunar landscape with smoking chimneys. Like, it was not a human landscape. So, of course, my mother didn't have any emotional reaction. They had to rebuild it. It was all Stalinist <laughs> masterpiece right. by the time we got there. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, again, so many of us don't know the details or the brutality of that war. And yet, nowadays, people know about Squid Game and Parasite, great movie, and K-pop and these sorts of things. It must be interesting for you to see the country kind of embrace all of these exciting things coming out of Korea and still not know what happened in the 1950s. Oh, definitely. You know, I'm happy for it because, you know, when I was growing up, I was either a chink or a jap, like no one even knew what Korea was. Korea's come to prominence as a developed country, you know, like a cultural power. But at the same time, I feel a little bit like we skipped a step, particularly with right. Squid Game. So much of the commentary is like, it's so brutal. Like Koreans are awful. They're just like so into brutality, you know, versus seeing this amazingly original cinema and people missed how metaphorical it was to the U.S. influence in Korea. Just mm -hmm. so many of the motifs, but the beautiful thing about it is the director didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care if people in the West were going to understand that. I mean, even the girl from North Korea, her name is Sebyeok. Like, if we're talking about names, what's interesting, Sebyeok just means dawn. It's a Korean word for dawn because North Korea stopped using Chinese-based characters because North Korea has become its own thing and it's not going to do any of the It started, everything is pure Korean where in, you know, like in Southern Korean culture, everything is like Chinese, like there's a Chinese-based word for everything and, and a Korean-based, but North Korea is so Korean-based. And so even, even not even being able to see that just made me feel like, wow, people are really missing so much of what is actually what they're trying to say about the partition do most of these viewers saying oh these koreans are so brutal like this is just brutality for fun do they even realize the u.s was on that partition korea does right. anyone know that does anybody right. care right let's take a quick break and we'll be right back saint john's college in santa fe new mexico is for undergraduate and graduate students seeking a lifelong commitment to thoughtful, collaborative inquiry into fundamental human questions. This summer, St. John's College invites you to connect with fellow lifelong learners, share ideas, and examine what it means to be a human in the world. Attend a week-long summer classic seminar in July and be inspired to see your world anew. From the classical writings of Plato and Aeschylus the latest in neuroscience and the brilliance of Southwest writer Leslie Marmon Silco, 
The St. John's College Summer Classic Seminars offer a world of intellectual connections. For more information, visit sjc.edu slash summerclassics. That's sjc.edu slash summerclassics. Now let's get back to our conversation with Marie Myung-Ak Lee. The book explores many types of loss, including loss of place. So many Korean immigrants lost place to return to or a place where they could honor and remember their families. Can you share more about the interplay then between displacement and grief? And, and, and again, I mean, all of this is in the context of a war that we waged that we're largely unaware of. So I think the book really brings that to the fore, as you just said. All of these things really are coming out of that war. So what about displacement and grief and no place to return to? Because after all, it's almost impossible to go to North Korea and your right. own parents are from there. Right. And it, it isn't the same place for them to return to either. Mm-hmm. I think of it a lot now as an adult, because when we were growing up, we were just completely Midwestern. And so we didn't miss anything. I mean, people seem surprised when I say I didn't even like try kimchi till I was in college or maybe after college. But you have to remember, because of the racist laws, Asians were not allowed to immigrate from Asia until 1965 with the Hart-Seller Act. So it never really occurred to me too much of about my parents not even being able to eat Korean food because there was no Korean grocery around. And then when there was one, we would make a yearly pilgrimage to Minneapolis, which was about four and a half hours, see the one family we knew grab this tiny thing of kimchi, bring it back. We were not allowed to touch it because my mom thought it was too odiferous. She really actually didn't like my dad eating it because she was afraid of what the white people would think. To be this deprived of this food that's so essential. You know, as a kid, I didn't really think of it. And I was kind of like, oh, kimchi smells, yuck. Let's just keep it in the back of the refrigerator, <laughs> you know, and in mash. They're always making jokes about it's a bomb or whatever. You know what I mean? So I'm growing up like inculcating that into my DNA, where at the same time, that time that my father, the last time his failed trip to North Korea, when he came to Seoul, he wanted to eat something called hamongnyangmyeon, which is a North Korean style cold noodles which I'm really good at spicy food. It's impossible for me to eat. And the worst thing, it's not only so spicy, it comes with this chopped skate, which is really prickly. And then I remember going, ah, I'm going to die. And then it comes (laughs) with like hot beef tea. So I was kind of chugging this going, no, it's hot beef tea. But my dad, just seeing how he just absorbed it and just thinking to me, like trying to understand what he's lost just by watching him trying to eat this food And I remember my uncle, who's South Korean, was there going, part of it is, you know, oh, it's the rich American is here. Why don't we go eat blah, blah, blah? Why do you want to eat this? And (laughs) he didn't understand why my dad wanted his one meal to be here. You know what I mean? Like, we never even really think, like, what if one day, you know, you didn't see your family ever again and you were never able to eat your favorite food? Like, we don't, that's not something that we think about. And as a kid, I just feel sad to some degree thinking, I'm bored. Every day is like another. And you know what I'm saying? Like, I think... My parents, right. given what they've been through, they would have killed, <laughs> you know what I mean, to have a couple of years like that. Because, you know what I mean, the end of the war, the colonization, the partition, and then the Korean War happened five years after. And then their immigration, when they were, because of the laws, undocumented immigrants. Like, I think their whole life has been pretty traumatic. I can't help but think right now when you talk this way about your parents, about Jungmann's son, Einstein, who's thoroughly American and sort of embraced this world of highly commercialized medicine. In fact, he ends up investing or working for a company that has mall outlets where people go receive their medical care in a highly transactional world of medicine. So that that cultural rift between Jungmann, who experienced the Korean War, grew up in Korea and came to the U.S., and his son, who seems as distant from it all as any other American. Part of the impetus for this also was completely serendipitous. Because of that badge, I got an email saying, hey, Dr. Lee, do you want to learn how to monetize your practice? Come see <laughs> us in Las Vegas. And sure enough, I got on a plane and went to Las Vegas. And then when they found out I wasn't a doctor, I actually got almost physically booted out of the conference. <laughs> it was Bugs Bunny style. This other doctor who was apparently a rival doctor was being booted out at the same time. And so we were just looking at each other super sadly, sitting in our butts. He said, come to my conference. 
So two weeks later, I was in some super fancy Four Seasons in Tucson watching these surgeries. And the term retailison, which seems super funny, is actually from that conference. Oh, really? I, I thought you had yes. invented that. No, I wish. I invented the Oregon Trail and Dome Depot, but not <laughs> Retailison, which is- Oregon but, Trail. But do you see what I'm saying? But that's how yeah. like weird our world has become, that you thought it was satirical, but I, I attended right. a clinician's conference where this was on a PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. This thing between parents and children, you raise questions about parenthood and how to instill values in children without imposing a fixed narrative upon them. Would you be willing to share a little bit about your own experience of parenthood, particularly raising a child with severe disabilities? Sure. I think because Korean culture, everyone always makes fun of the study culture, but I don't think they understand that for someone like my father, because he went to the Harvard of Korea, that saved his life. Later, the Eighth Army ended up occupying the Seoul National University campus. Seoul National University also appears in the book. That's how he met the Americans, someone from the World Health Organization who helped him to immigrate. His studying literally saved his life. His knowing English better than everybody else. He became a liaison officer because they just took the top five people in his class, but he spoke English the best. So all Mm -hmm. these things made him feel, if we were going to keep up with white people, we all had to go to Harvard. And that was just this given where, you know, to the outside, it looks silly. It's like, you know, tiger dad stuff. But that's what I understand now. Like, this was like an act of love for him, that this is his, the way he knew how to parent the best, kind of how Jungman is trying to parent the way he knows the best and it's not so great sometimes. I kind of felt like I was sort of following the narrative. Well, first, I didn't get into Harvard, so I had that problem. And then I went to a different school that was not Harvard, so my parents kind of didn't care. And it was a little bit good because... They thought I'd already ruined my life, so they were paying a lot less attention to me. They didn't drive me to college like they did to my sister when she got to Harvard. So I kind of was a little bit more left to my own devices, including my parents didn't want me to be a writer. In fact, they were quite against it. And I did work as an investment banker for a a bunch of years, amassing money for my career, but also appeasing them. So when I had my son, it looked very much like this is what you do when you are a person, you get married. And I also married really late. And then I had my kid. And then my father shows up with a Harvard onesie for my infant son with a Harvard rattle. And here we go. We're doing the next round of what you do when you have tiger parents. You know, I did have ideas that I, you know, wanted our son to be bilingual and this and that. And But then it turned out, you know, when he was 18 months old, he was diagnosed with a cancer. And then that kind of crisis obscured a bunch of other medical issues he had. And then he also has autism and intellectual disability, which he still does. And that, more than anything, actually pushed me over from being Christian and kind of Buddhist. I was attending a Korean church at the time to just being fully Buddhist. And I think part of it was... It helped me a lot with my mindset of, oh, God will fix this, or you must have done something terrible. Like there's just this very weird theology. (laughs) I just, it wasn't helping me deal with what was happening. And I saw it more also clearly with my husband because he always wanted to have children. And I saw it more clearly when you have these plans, I do do not go as planned, Mm -hmm. how devastating that is and how difficult that can be emotionally and how easily you can kind of get stuck in a depressive rut of being, oh, like this isn't supposed to be like this. And I could feel myself kind of going into this rut. And it really was leaning more deeply into being Buddhist and just kind of being present and learning how to be present for my son. I guess it's kind of going back to like what you brought up at the beginning about the repetition. Like being present for my son every day, no matter if he was hitting us, smearing his poop around, showing up, being present, it did eventually result in certain epiphanies. I have learned that I am a really good parent to him, that I started out being really unsure of myself and needing the experts and finally realizing the experts were wrong, that I know my son, I'm a good parent to him. And these wonderful things, because I've been able to buck what people want me to do, including institutionalize him, have opened this up this whole world of joy. And in fact, my husband and I were just talking about this morning because at school he made this goofy picture and he's smiling and they pasted his picture on as an astronaut. (laughs) 
So, uh, but I was telling my husband, like he, we didn't have any pictures of him smiling from when he was nine <laughs> to probably 13. Right. And now he's just so joyful. And a lot of that has been because we've accepted him for who he is. And then he understands that now too. Oh, that's nice. Talked a little bit about your spiritual journey. It's like almost a decade ago, you wrote an article for Tricycle called Losing My Religion, where you traced your journey from Christianity toward what you called your mixed breed spirituality, pantheist, Buddhist, Korean animist, nature worshiper, Christian. Can you share more about your own journey and the religious communities and practices that have shaped your thinking? I think I'm always like, oh, I'm such a directions follower. I'm always like, oh, you know what? I meditate every day, but sometimes I only do it for two minutes. I'm a bad Buddhist or I don't read a lot on it. And But now that I've relaxed into it more, I'm just understanding, you know, I was kind of shamefacedly telling this to my friend whose family has a monastery in Japan. And she just said, dude, she said, you know, these monks micro meditate all the time. It's a thing. And I just thought, oh, really? <laughs> That's interesting. And then I was telling my other friend, like, you know, sometimes my plants talk to me and I'm kind of into that. And I just feel inanimate things talk to me. And he just said, uh, come on, like there is a very primal religion in Korea. That's exactly that. And that has a little Buddhism mixed in. And again, it's just such a different deal for when you grow up and there's this God who's watching you and you worship the God. And as opposed to, eh, today I kind of feel like, uh, want to talk to Guan Yin a little bit or this Buddha or just kind of the Buddhism to me is just more mixed into what I do every day. And it's also mixed into me talking to my plants. I don't necessarily discount the idea that, you know, the oneness that I could feel through my Buddhism and my plant worship and animism is the same thing what Christians might call the Holy Spirit or whatever, like it all might be the same thing or what metaphysicists call energy. But I'm actually now at a place that I'm really enjoying because I don't feel that I have to explain it or actually understand it. It's just like Justice Potter, the Supreme Court Justice said when they asked him about the definition of pornography, he said he knows it when he sees it. <laughs> right. He couldn't define it. And I'm just really feeling happy in that place. You know, in Korea, my aunt is... Is your typical Presbyterian. And I just had all this weird Buddhist iconography like in my apartment. And she just, ah, whenever she came in, she'd have to hide it and put it away. And she was really superstitious about it. And like I hadn't seen that kind of idea until I started going to church with her. And they really would preach, you have to save your family from the fortune teller, physically restrain <laughs> them if you have to. And you shouldn't touch this. And Catholics are evil. It's a pagan religion. And just just seeing that other side of it illuminated things about how, how she sees the world. And I respect it. And at the same time, it made me more feel more open about, yeah, I like the way I see my world too. I like going to temple on Buddha's birthday, but not, you know, you can't even really tell who's Buddhist. Everyone's just carrying their lanterns. You can do whatever you want to do. And there's something about, not necessarily that it's individual. It's kind of like this individual collective thing. And I don't think people realize too, you know, in, in Korea, like one of the big threats is that the boogeyman coming to get you is that the Buddhist beggars, because part of the practice is they have these bowls and they have to go get alms. That's the thing that people threaten their kids with, that they're going to give you the Buddhist <laughs> boogeyman. Yeah, it's funny. The monotheistic traditions, God is a very jealous God. He will have no other God before him. And yet, that's why it can strike Westerners as odd when they're looking, say, at Japan or Korea, where people may be Buddhist, but they incorporate, say, in Japan, Shinto ritual and so forth. And in The Evening Hero, in, in your novel, it takes place in a complex religious landscape with Christian missionaries, Korean Presbyterian congregations, which there's some humor there, uh, shamans and healers and Buddhist death rituals. It was a very rich world. And Yongman himself is kind of like, eh. A lot of times yeah. I think he's just like, all I can just go to hell. <laughs> it's yeah. just kind of his own thing. Yeah. So in addition to being a writer, you also teach at Columbia University. So I'm curious to know how the pandemic and global crises of the last few years have impacted what you're seeing in the classroom. What have you noticed about the types of stories that your students are interested in telling? 
I think one of the things are the students are very stressed. I can't imagine what it would be like in such a formative time to have so much of your time, sunlight, being stuck in Zoom. And then also, I think the uprise in anti-Asian violence, which I saw coming long before COVID really hit, because part of it is in Asia, because we have this very collective culture, everyone masks during cold season because Mm-hmm. You don't want to give yourself a cold. You'll feel bad if that happens. So it's just normal. If you see any Korean soap opera, someone will be wearing a mask at some point. You know, even like the goofiest rock and roll one, there'll be someone wearing a mask. And I was wearing a mask. And mm-hmm. I just saw people looking at me very funny in the Columbia neighborhood where I thought, oh, I live in New York. It's the most tolerant place in the world. We're all professors. Everyone's really into multiculturalism. And then when COVID started, people would run away from me or just glare at me. And I was just not, I really was not used to that. And then there have been some violent incidents on campus and my older colleague got body slammed actually two hours after she was on TV talking about anti-Asian violence. And to her credit, she went back on TV to talk about it. And it was very interesting because one of my younger colleagues, this had happened to him when he was out with other Asian colleagues and he just thought, oh, this was some kind of mistake or... It's hard to pin it to anti-Asian violence because, again, like, I feel like so much of this has been gaslit. Like, oh, you can't prove it or they're not using slurs. Right. So that's been a huge reckoning for us. And it's also been a little difficult because as professors, they want us to talk about it all the time. And we're already, we're processing it. It's traumatizing, but we feel like we have to talk about it. And at the same time, then it takes up our time. And then what if we don't get tenure? It's been this very mixed bag of emotions (laughs) besides the isolation. I imagine a friend of mine's kids, I watched them grow up, but they grew up feeling perfectly safe and they belonged and everything was fine. And then this wave of anti-Asian violence swept the country. And all of a sudden, one of them was spat on on the subway. And it's shocking. But they woke up to realizing, well, maybe we're living in a world that we didn't quite know we were living in. So... It is very confusing for them, let alone being confusing for much older people. Right. And we're kind of tired of people saying, well, don't do this. Don't do that. Like for a while, I used to react to anti-Asian violence by being very violent myself. Like mm-hmm. someone cut me off in their car and I would hit their car and then had these altercations. <laughs> so I thought, Marie, oh, you don't look like somebody who does that. <laughs> hey, I have a black belt in Taekwondo, <laughs> by the way. Wow. But actually to the Taekwondo code, you're not supposed to be starting fights. But right. the point being that There is no good way. It's like, it really is about addressing the anti-Asian violence. Like, do you Mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Like for a while I was thinking, you know, I have like a full like punching bag and I've been practicing, but I, you know what I mean? People are like, no, you have to just stand down. Like you're going to cause more violence, but no, there's no rhyme or reason. Like the woman who, Yuna Lee, who got murdered, she took a cab home so she wouldn't get pushed in the subway. Like the other person got pushed, you know, like two weeks earlier. There is no right way for us to be. It's more like people who are not Asian need to step up when they see violence happening and we need to address structural inequality and racism. That's what it is. It's not on us, but we still do have to protect ourselves. So I don't stand near the edge of the subway either. Absolutely. You know, there are a few questions I kind of skipped over, but I'd like to go back to them for a moment. In the novel, the Jungmann's hospital is closed, like many small town or regional hospitals. It happened here in Manhattan too. In my own neighborhood, they closed down a hospital to build condos. So as medicine becomes more commercialized, we're seeing this happen. It's not profitable, so the community loses its hospital. What was it like writing about this sort of thing and writing about medicine during the pandemic? So I had a little bit of a jaundiced eye about medicine, as you probably saw in the book. Mm -hmm. And some of it had to do with the for-profit medicine and the way that they monetize everything. And now they have pre-diabetes so they can use more drugs and so forth. But one thing that has changed for me to some degree is I'm quite skeptical of many medical treatments because I know where they come from and that they are profitable. But the pandemic did change a lot of the way I've looked at the medical profession, seeing how heroic, literally heroic, a lot of these doctors, I mean, my gastroenterologist got reassigned. They all had to work like in the ER and nobody even knew what they were doing, like in terms of PPE and so forth. I've evolved a little bit because I do tend to, especially like politically, I tend to be, I'm progressive. That's part of my identity. 
I know everything that's bad about medicine, but at the same time I did, I did back up a little bit and, and realize, yeah, you know what? The medical community is important. And some people do go into it for the right reasons and they really are quite heroic, not just doctors, but the staff. I hope that kind of infused itself a little bit in the book. And Mm -hmm. I do remember when I was working at Woodhall, one of the midwives said, hey, put your book down. You're going to like this. Come on, come on, come on. And a Latina couple was giving birth and she let me put my hands on the baby as it was coming out. She put her hands over my hands. I wasn't literally... And, but because I was Asian, they thought I was the doctor and they were like all excited. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Have that experience yeah. when you actually see the baby go from a fetus to breathing. Then I thought, you know, it was so helpful for me to be like, yeah, this is what Youngman likes to do. That's why he does it. Right. Like, honestly, I didn't know why I made him an OBGYN, except that I wanted it to be an essential, something essential like what my father did. The OBGYN is a very difficult profession. You do do surgery, but nobody, you don't get any respect because you're primary care. That fit all of my categories for fiction. Well, Jungman strikes me as a very moral person and at the same time bereft of his culture and also compassionate. But at the same time, he starts to confront the hollowness of the American dream, I think. Is that right? Fair to say? And he's kind of a jerk sometimes too. Yeah, he can be. He can be, but he really does fight for his patients and he really is fully present for them. Yeah, he can be a jerk to his wife, to his son, but we can all be. But he's a very compelling figure at the same time. You end up feeling for him. Right. And I I do think that he is coming up against the idea, again, the middle Marchist idea. He wants to do the right thing. He wants to help people. He has all this training. What can he do? And then working at the mall, depilating pubic hair becomes the closest thing he can do. (laughs) And it's not great. Right. But he does find doctors without borders. He does go to North Korea with his wife. And it answers his need to be of service and to be a doctor for all the right reasons. And at the same time, to come full circle and honor his ancestors or his family. Right. But then we also see that young A, because of the war, because of her pregnancy, was never able to be a doctor as well. Right. I think there is part of part of the book is really about the consequences of war. Like this was just never going to happen for her. Now, she's his wife. I just want to make that clear. Right. Since Thank we you. haven't mentioned her. Young A is his wife, and she doesn't she never gets to live the life that she wants to lead or that she's been prepared to lead because of history. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's happening all over the world right now. Well, Marie, there's so much in the book, and and not only is the character development wonderful, but it certainly teaches us about a part of our own history, our own collective history on the Korean Peninsula that many of us simply don't know. So I'd like to thank you for that. Oh, thank you for saying that. That's how I'm hoping people are going to read it. Oh, good. <laughs> then I read it the right way. I always wonder about this. So Marie myung it's been a great pleasure for our listeners. Be sure to pick up a copy of The Evening Hero out this month. Thanks, Marie. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you for reading the book so closely and wonderfully. Oh, thank you. You've been listening to Tricycle Talks with Marie myung We love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. So write us at feedback at tricycle.org to let us know what you think. Tricycle Talks is produced by As It Should Be Productions and Sarah Fleming. I'm James Shaheen, Editor-in-Chief of Tricycle The Buddhist Review. Thanks for listening.